Hello, this is Thomas Cruz of SAE and Associates. Today we'll continue our discussion on the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act, compliance work of SAE and Associates, and in particular, our Behavioral Health Litigation Support Services. This is part of our Parity Compliance Series, so if you haven't already listened to our first podcast of the series, which provides an overview on Parity Compliance, you can check it out on our website, saeandassociates.com forward slash podcasts. So, I'm joined by Dr. Estrin, the CEO of our company, and special guests Brian Baldwin and Dr. Maria Messina, both members of SAE's independent parity compliance team. Dr. Messina is a medical anthropologist with 25 years of experience conducting both long and short-term ethnographic fieldwork with funding from Fulbright and the National Institute of Health, to name a few. More recently, she's evaluated numerous federally funded behavioral health and HIV prevention programs in community-based organizations in New York City. Brian Baldwin has extensive experience in behavioral health program evaluation and compliance. He's worked in the New York State Office of Mental Health Division of Quality Management and Bureau of Inspection and Certification, the New York State Office of Alcoholism and Substance Abuse Services, and he currently heads Baldwin Consultants, a behavioral health consulting firm. During his years at OMH, Brian conducted on-site evaluations of most of the inpatient, outpatient, and residential mental health programs in the metropolitan area. He's provided comprehensive program evaluations for inpatient psychiatric hospitals, outpatient mental health, and substance abuse programs. So our previous podcast in this series provided an overview of parity compliance. I want to start by picking your brains about non-quantitative treatment limits and their significance, especially in parity compliance work. So Brian, start by talking a bit about your role as the lead in evaluating UMUR policy and network capacity. How do UMUR policies impact access to substance use and mental health treatment? Uh, thank you, Thomas. Um... Utilization review policies are used by managed care organizations to structure their oversight of admissions and continued stays at behavioral health treatment programs. Uh, you could uh, characterize utilization review as a kind of a gatekeeper function. These policies set the rules for how managed care organizations will approve or deny benefits for services. And one of the key ingredients of the UR process are the medical necessity criteria. These are uh, medical necessity criteria that are used for all levels of treatment services. For substance abuse treatment services, the most widely used medical necessity criteria is the American Society of Addiction Medicine criteria, sometimes called the ASAM criteria which is a large, complex textbook developed by this group. It's the application of these medical necessity criteria by the utilization review staff at managed care organizations that results in the authorization or denial of behavioral health services. Right. And talk about how important it is for each managed care organization to have a set of providers ready at the helm. Each managed care organization is responsible for developing and maintaining a network of providers across all levels of behavioral health services and across all geographies of its service area. It's especially pertinent 
that when a higher level of behavioral health services is denied based on medical necessity, that there be an available provider for the recommended lower level right. of services. Now, certain specialized treatment services are currently not widely available in New York State. These include eating disorder inpatient, residential and outpatient treatment, as well as outpatient substance abuse stabilization and withdrawal services, otherwise known as detox. In addition, many behavioral health as well as medical providers are passively withdrawing from managed care provider panels due to the dissatisfaction with fees. Right, right. Now let's get into treatment limits. Several publications have stated that non-quantitative treatment limits are worth researching further. So explain the difference between quantitative treatment limits and non-quantitative treatment limits. What's the impact of non-quantitative treatment limits on parity? Uh, yes, uh, the parity legislation um, addresses both quantitative uh, treatment limits as well as non-quantitative. The quantitative ones are fairly uh, simple. They are numerical, such as uh, visit limits and day limits. Non-quantitative treatment limitations include, but are not limited, to medical management, step therapy, and pre-authorization. Now, there's an illustrative list of non-quantitative treatment limitations in the regulations themselves. A group health plan or coverage can't impose a non-quantitative treatment limitation with respect to behavioral health care benefits in any uh, level of care unless, under the terms of the plan, as written and in operation, any processes, strategies, evidentiary standards, or other factors used in applying the non-quantitative treatment limitation to behavioral health benefits in the classification are comparable to and are applied no more stringently than those for medical surgical. The final regulations eliminated an exception that allowed for different non-quantitative treatment limitations to the extent that recognized clinically appropriate standards of care may permit a difference. Mm -hmm. You know, Brian, uh, you've really given a nice overview of the elements of compliance and what, what's required. But let me throw this out to you. Uh, your task with reviewing compliance. So how would you attack this? Do you look at benefit design? Uh, do you see if the benefit design package matches the parity requirements? How do, you, how do you approach the UMUR issue and the NQTL issue? I mean, operationally, if I said to you, Brian, dig in, show me if this plan is compliant or not, what steps would you take? Just broadly, what steps would you take in approaching this problem? Okay, Steve. Well, um, of course, one of the uh, items that you just quoted is the plan design. The plan design obviously has to include everything in the parity legislation to show that uh, the plan meets the requirement, that offers all the levels of care and so forth. Right. But the implementation of the plan really is what uh, is 
you know, really required when you're doing an analysis of parity at, an, at a uh, managed care organization. You have to look at their utilization review process, the way they handle their approval and denial of services, which we uh, mentioned earlier in our definition of what utilization review is. And so, you know, uh, digging deep into the uh, behaviors of the managed care company in how they go about uh, approving care and denying care uh, is very important. You know, I'm often tempted to say the good news is the Mental Health Parity Act of 2008 was the landmark legislation. The bad news is the Mental Health Parity Legislation Act of 2008 is here and needs to be reviewed and on an operational level looked at for compliance. Right. So the, the issue here really is, yes, the, the legislation is out, but the devil is in the details. The problem is how do we operationally measure compliance? And that is the, really the core of what SAE offers. Because we've had now two years of experience mm -hmm. doing this. Yeah. Two years. And what we've discovered is, yes, the devil is in the details. It's one thing to put forward the legislation, but it is a master, master task to ensure compliance. And uh, Brian has begun to look at some of the elements of benefit design, UMUR, etc. So maybe you could elaborate a little more on some of the difficulties. Yeah, well, one of the things that uh, is, a, is an area that, uh, you know, we've looked at is how d does a managed care company handle denials? How do they apply the medical necessity criteria that uh, I referred to earlier, both the uh, mental health medical necessity criteria as well as the ASAM criteria? And, um, you know, that, that is uh, yielding, you know, quite some interesting data in terms of how those uh, medical necessity criteria are being applied. You know, the Parity Act is assuming that uh, managed care companies apply those criteria in the same way that uh, they're applying them to medical surgical benefits and medical surgical treatments. Mm -hmm. Steve, I think um, parallel to your point about the parity law, um, it's one thing for it to be enacted, but it's another thing for it to be properly implemented. I think that very much parallels our work as external compliance administrators. Absolutely. Because number one, mm -hmm. we have to see if the policy is compliant, but once we find out that policy is compliant, we then have to make sure that it is implemented properly, right. and then not only implemented properly, that it can be sustained yeah. in the way it's intended. Right, and I think one issue that we've encountered, and you'll hear in our next podcast, is how we measure sustainability of change. That's a critical factor that we've come up with. Right. It's one thing to promote change, but to sustain it, that's the crux of the parity uh, compliance task. Well, uh, Steve, traditionally, you know, before the parity legislation, some managed care companies uh, had very straightforward ways of limiting behavioral health care that were in no way 
compliant with uh, parity, which didn't exist at that point. You know, it frequently would consist of, uh, you know, dollar limits, mm -hmm. vi uh, visit limits, day limits, right. uh, lifetime limits, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But now, you know, there still are other ways, particularly non-quantitative limits, uh, where managed care companies can still limit care and access to treatment uh, in other ways. So in a sense, we've, we've begun to focus on this issue of helping the company uh, redirect its effort so that they do not limit access, particularly with the NQTL uh, factor. And maybe you could talk a little bit more on that, Brian. Okay, well, um, maybe I should uh, give uh, you know, some examples of the uh, non-quantitative yeah. treatment, right. treatment limitations. Mm -hmm. Um, and these include uh, medical management standards limiting or excluding benefits based on medical necessity or medical appropriateness or based on whether the treatment is experimental or investigative. Uh, it also includes uh, the formulary design for prescription drugs. You know, uh, uh, sometimes there are more than one uh, medications to treat a certain condition, mm. so the formulary may only allow, uh, you know, maybe the least expensive or whatever. Right. Um, uh, for plans with multiple network tiers, such as preferred, uh, preferred providers and participating providers, uh, there can be a network tiered design, you know, preferred providers uh, versus uh, out-of-network providers or preferred providers versus just in-network providers. Um, another is planned methods for determining usual, customary, and reasonable charges. Um, they also can refuse to pay for higher cost therapies until it can be shown that a lower cost therapy is not effective. Now, this is also known as the fail first policy or step therapy protocols, and that's really now, uh, you know, not allowed under parity, but, you know, had been used in the past. Um, another is the exclusion based on a failure to complete a course of treatment. In other words, you know, kind of like punishing the patient for, you know, not uh, successfully uh, completing treatment. Um, other restrictions are based on uh, geographical location, facility type, provider specialty, and other criteria that limit the scope or duration of benefits for services provided under the plan or coverage. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, these are all things that when you evaluate a plan, you have to take a look at to see, are they doing this? Are they doing it through plan design? Are they doing it through uh, their UR process? Right. You know, I think one issue here is that we are an external parity compliance administrator. We're not employed by a, a managed care company. So in a way, we're very independent. Yeah. And we, therefore, face the issue when we engage with them, how do you create a climate of cooperation, Brian? To, what have you done so that um, my perception is you've done very well in, have, in getting them to give you access to information? Uh, and in a therapeutic vein, you might say you've overcome resistance, natural uh, resistance. And uh, so here we are, an external priority compliance administrator, coming to quotes a foreign body, so to speak. Mm -hmm. 
And yet we've been able, in the course of two years, to have a good working relationship and to elicit inf critical information. What do you attribute to your success? Well, I mean, obviously, you know, what you referred to, uh, you know, in terms of clinicians overcoming resistance to treatment, you know, that, you know, uh, that is a key part of it. I mean, some of my past experience has been in program evaluation, um, you know, where you go into a program and the people who are there have a certain amount of anxiety about your presence and a little bit nervous about what you might uh, find in terms of uh, looking at their program. And, you know, the same goes for our interaction with uh, any managed care companies. And obviously it starts with the relationship. You have to not deny that you're there to, you know, evaluate and uh, in this case evaluate compliance with parity, but you have to look to your clinical skills to develop some positive uh, relationships with the people that you're dealing with, many of whom are clinicians and are, you know, trying to do the best job possible. Uh, they have concern for clients. We've interviewed many of the people involved in the UR process and, you know, they're open to uh, improvement and to uh, working together with us. Yeah, I think, Steve, um, a key issue is that we manage that we, we it's not even part of our values to take a punitive approach. A managed care company that finds itself in legal jeopardy naturally may feel defensive. Right. What I've observed uh, in Brian's um, manner of collaborating yep. with our um, managed care agency mm -hmm. and for myself as an anthropologist I approach this as I would any research project as field work. You need to go assess the lay of the land, learn the values and the worldview perspective of the people you're working with, and then from that point of view, kind of gently in, in, uh, insinuate yourself into a collaborative process. And I think that's the key thing. It's collaborative and mentoring. Well, from a psychoanalytic or psychotherapy approach, I was always taught Never attack a defense. Right. Go with the feeling. Right. And that's what we're saying here. It's not profitable for us to, to demean or attack or critically uh, assault or client, but to talk about, to have a discussion about what their fears are, their insecurities. Mm -hmm. Go with the feelings. And that leads to a sense of trust and relationship. Building. Yeah, empathy. I think that's true, Steve, and if you recall early on in our work as uh, external compliance administrators, there was a very defensive, if not even hostile, uh, um, manner uh, from the people we had to work with, and that's kind of understandable given the legal predicament they were in. But as you said, um, from a psychoanalytic point of view, from an anthropological point of view, and from a clinical point of view, uh, establishing that collaborative um, teaching and learning relationship is key. Well, I think, again, affirming their fears and insecurities and not attacking them is a good way to develop the relationship. Absolutely. Which, which brings me to another issue. You play a key role, uh, Maria, in terms of the qualitative approach. Right. Can you comment on what you do and how you contribute? Sure. Um, you did mention earlier um, about Alex, who will speak in the next podcast. He's our statistical expert, and he 
identifies um, trends with large by processing large amounts of data. Right. What I do, on the other hand, in conjunction with Brian's work clinically assessing the appropriateness of determinations for whether a, a, a member should receive treatment or not, is to see the appropriateness of uh, how the medical necessity criteria are applied. So once Brian does his work, then where I come in is I take a look at each case Brian assesses, so it's a granular view, a ground level approach, and quantify the qualitative information so that we can, at uh, a more granular level, uh, see what the see what the trends are, and when you know, as we found out with Alex, um, quantitative data alone can be misleading because, as we progressed in our um, assessment of compliance, we found that there are the trends were moving in the direction they should. However, with Brian and my work on the qualitative level, looking at individual cases we found that there were still significant problems in how the agency was applying the medical necessity criteria, thereby having inappropriate, potentially serious denials for treatment for mental health or substance use dependency. Can you give an illustration of who you might talk to? You're on the qualitative side, so I'm assuming your work is speaking and interviewing yes. uh, participants both from the plan and potentially consumers. That's right. You know, um, as you mentioned earlier, we have to examine that the policies are in compliance with the parity law. Mm -hmm. um, and on the qualitative level, it's the, it's the actual human beings, how they perform their role, how they function. Are they functioning in compliance with parity? How well do they understand parity? And how are they applying uh, parity to the work at hand. For example, case managers have a huge role in the medical, in the utilization management and review process. What Brian and I discovered from having face-to-face -face interviews going on-site and observing them um, receiving the calls from providers, right. we could see where there were gaps that were potentially problematic in how they were um, collecting information. That's one aspect. Uh, another aspect uh, is um, looking at the individual case notes and um, looking at the information even that the providers um, give for assessment. And what we could say is that, um, as I will mention a little bit more about later, the health literacy necessity is uh, required for everyone, and that even highly literate people are can be um, health literacy challenged. That is, right. they don't know how to communicate clearly or even understand clearly enough something like the medical necessity criteria and how they should be applied. So, in a sense, it's not only the professional staff and the, uh, you know the staff of the health plan, but it has an imp impact. Health literacy has an impact in terms of the consumers, in terms of the information you disseminate to them. Absolutely. Um, Steve, if anything that our qualitative work has shown is that health literacy 
is an important um, is very important to accessing care. It also can impact the effectiveness in treatment. It involves everything from understanding patients' rights, how to appeal a denial of coverage, or even understanding how to read and follow the directions on a medication prescription. Right. So you're talking about the consumer, the patient's ability to understand the information that he's given and to ensure that it's given in a way that it's comprehensible. You know, I, I, you know, when I think of health literacy at its worst, I think of some of the legal documents you get, you know, in the bottom with all the little criteria, <laughs> that's small printed, yes. and, you know, it looks to me like it's, it's been sent out by the CIA to prevent decoding. <laughs> uh, so, in a sense, uh, it, it's a similar issue if you put yourself in the patient's uh, seat. Right. And from my own experience, trying to understand forms that doctors give you, that hospitals give you, if it's not health literal, if it's not comprehensive to me, I do one of two things. I either disregard it, I don't read it, I don't understand it, I may sign away some issues irresponsibly for lack of comprehension. So health literacy, which really talks to the issue of the individual's ability to understand the information conveyed to him, is critical. Right, and the other side of that coin is that the healthcare provider or the physician, the healthcare worker, needs to be able to communicate effectively so that a, a member or a patient understands. Um, there was a study in 2004 um, put out by the Institute of Medicine that reported low health literacy negatively affects the treatment outcome and even the safety of care delivery. Uh, the fact that all, all segments of the population need health literacy um, and we know that it disproportionately impacts certain demographic groups such as the elderly, ethnic minorities, recent immigrants, and especially persons with low general literacy. Yeah, that I think is uh, what we've discovered. You know, one of the things is that's contained in the parity legislation is the uh, ability of managed care companies to communicate uh, if say they're going to deny care what is the exact reason why are you being why is your uh, care not your care but your benefit uh, not being approved for a certain level of care and the way it's communicated is uh, you know of course very important and uh, sometimes not really adequate. In other words, the reason for claims denial is communicating in a way that's not easily understood by the patient. Right. Also, what we've discovered in our qualitative approach to analyzing compliance is that um, there can be administrative staff involved in the decision-making process who do not necessarily have a sophisticated enough grasp of the medical necessity criteria and how to apply them uh, in so far as we've seen a significant number of cases where potentially life-saving treatment was denied inappropriately. Right, and that's unfortunate. So you've been at this for two years now. 
looking at things from both quantitative and qualitative standpoints. What do you think are the critical issues that still need to be addressed, keeping in mind, of course, that parity compliance is the mission here? Well, um, you know, Maria mentioned this before. Um, you know, you can have an organization that is uh, policy compliant and uh, plan design compliant. It really all comes down to the implementation and how they're taking, you know, their policies and, you know, the way their plans are designed and uh, delivering uh, benefits so that a person can have access to the proper uh, treatment program if right. they have a behavioral health condition. And a lot of that is tied up in the UMUR process and how it is uh, carried out by the care managers and by the peer review physicians and how they, uh, you know, sometimes limit treatment um, based on their interpretation of medical necessity criteria. I would have to say what unexpectedly emerged as important is this issue of health literacy because there is often a mismatch between the clinician's level of communication as well as the insurer's, the managed care company's communication to the member and that impacts a patient's ability to understand and act effectively and competently to pursue the treatment they need. So even if patients know that they have the right to appeal a denial of mental health or substance use dependency care, what we have found is that the instructions for appealing denials can be very complex and uh, are not easily understood, even by specialists with our background. And one reason may be that there is a concern to structure the, the uh, directions in a way that accommodates legal concerns. So you have this mixture of legal terminology with medical terminology, complex structure of sentences yeah. that ends up being kind of gobbledygook that would likely easily discourage a member from pursuing an appeal. Right. I think you're hitting a critical issue that the documents that the, uh, the uh, behavioral health staff and the legal staff create really are a reflection of their training. Right. So what they put out is easily comprehensible to them, although mm -hmm. it could be doubtful if they really read it. Right. And I say that jokingly, right. but to them, they're securing it, they're comfortable, that's their professional language. Yeah. The problem is, it's not the language of the consumer. It's not the exactly. language of the, uh, of, of the individual that has to have this knowledge to make an informed decision. You hit it on the head, Steve. I'd have to say, as a cultural medical anthropologist, a primary objective of our field is the translation of culture. Yeah. And I think that a, a significant issue is this translation of health information so that the uh, essence is not diminished, but it is communicated in a way that's accessible and that doesn't intimidate a patient from acting uh, accordingly. Yes, and I think one of the things to take away for me is that health literacy as a critical factor in parity compliance has to be 
emphasized more. And we really have to de develop a methodology to uh, evaluate uh, health literacy level in terms of the information communicated and health literacy level on, the half, on behalf of the behavioral health consumer. And we have to figure out ways to increase the consumer's understanding of the information that they are provided with. And part of the intimidation is also the sheer volume of the communication to the member. Sometimes uh, it's you know many, many pages of material to read through. In the United States, we're dealing with multiple complexities. We have complicated information within a complicated insurance system, within a complicated healthcare system. Most of us can be challenged at some point in time. So um, I want to pose one final question to the both of you. I've already asked Steve this. Again, you've, you've, you guys have been knee deep in this parity compliance work for two years now. If you take a step back, what, what's, the most, what's been the most fulfilling aspect of being involved in this work? Well, um, to give the uh, managed care companies some credit, what we have seen are certain improvements and certain movements in the right direction. So we have seen in our collaborative work that there is some understanding of where they need to be and some movement towards that. Right. I also feel that it's been an honor to have some hand in overseeing and ensuring that parity is enacted properly because the bottom line is we want to see vulnerable individuals get the care that they need, the care that they deserved, and to get rid of this um, stigma that elevates medical surgical or normalizes yeah. medical surgical matters over mental health and behavioral health uh, problems. It's just not been fair and people suffer. And I, I can say that we have seen some improvement in improved access to care, witness the fact that the spend level has gone up <laughs> dramatically. So people are getting better access to care, but there's a long way to go. Yeah. I agree. Yes. So that concludes today's SAE Cares podcast. Again, I'd like to thank Dr. Maria Messina, Brian Baldwin, and Dr. Estrin for adding to our discussion on effective approaches for parity compliance. Stay tuned for our upcoming podcast featuring Alex Hutchinson, who will focus on data reporting and the challenges in comparing med surge to behavioral health. Take care.